This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. So here. Yeah, some smiling faces among Facebook investors today because uh, we've got the stock rallying up about 5%, a little bit off its highs of the days. But uh, if you're trying to be a bull on this name, you're pretty happy. 153.29 is the last trade. Let's get into what you need to know about the company's latest quarterly update because that's why the stock is up. Sarah Fryer. Fryer is all over that. She follows the company and is technology reporter at Bloomberg News. She's in our Bloomberg 960 studio in San Francisco. So, Sarah, I know you've had a a busy 24 hours leading into the earnings and then after the earnings. What do we need to know as investors about uh, the latest quarterly update from Facebook? Well, Facebook did not decline in popularity as much as people fear they might. I mean, this this Wait, that year, sounds like a funny way of phrasing it. it things does, are not it does. And maybe as bad as maybe people thought. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, okay, so just think about the year that Facebook yeah. had, right? A major data breach. They had a, a scandal over Cambridge Analytica in March. They had um, several congressional hearings. They had um, you know these broad privacy concerns. But then on top of that, we have the elections coming in one week, and they're on the line for trying to make sure that fake news and misinformation doesn't become a problem. So there are all these things that investors are thinking, oh my gosh, people are going to be ditching Facebook because it just isn't a place where people want to hang out anymore. Is is that really going to cause a problem for the stock? The company earlier this year said that growth was going to massively slow. That scared everyone. This quarter comes, and not only does growth not slow as much as people thought it would, but the company says, that it has huge plans for the future. And and so let me break it down. So so Facebook says that the news feed, as you know, it, it's not going to really be the future of the company. This this flagship product that Facebook has is going to be eventually be replaced by activity on stories and video. Now, what stories are, it's the, the thing you may have heard of on Instagram. It's where you post videos from your day, and they dis- disappear after 24 hours. This is what Mark Zuckerberg thinks is the future of social sharing. It's this ephemeral content that is is really kind of raw and fun and personal. And the problem is Facebook just has to figure out how to make money off that. So that's going to take a while. Um, but for now, these are two big categories that the company thinks that they're really going to grow in fast. And you'll see a very different kind of Facebook. And what does that really look like from an investor's perspective? Does it change the way that they view it? Does it change the growth trajectory? What did you hear or what are you hearing uh, from from both the executives at Facebook on the call yesterday and then investors' reaction about how this kind of changed the way they think about it? So – like I said, it's been a year of apology and yeah. promising to do better and in fixing the problems and, you know, really investing and hiring people that can solve it from the security perspective and elsewhere. This was a call where Zuckerberg came out and said, we have a vision. We have there's a way we're going to grow that is innovative and new and exciting. And you don't really necessarily know what it's going to look like because we haven't done it before. 
that's the kind of Facebook that investors are, you know, they're 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 looking for. They want some, they want a company that's innovative and growing and has a idea of how it can be bigger in the future instead of just thinking about the Facebook product as something that's really hit a saturation right. of growth around the world. More than 2 billion users now, right? And I mean, around which there are big kind of existential questions, dare I say. Absolutely. That is the place where all of the problems have cropped up because of this viral nature of the website and the way that things are rewarded. I mean, it's just a mess. And so for them to say, like, listen, that's not even our future. Like, we'll fix that. That's still important. And that's still where we make the most money. But it's not our future. Interesting. That was something that I think really resonated with investors. It's showing it's going to mean a slowdown. Right. Sorry. It's just saying, hey, listen, we were we were a pretty innovative company when we got started and we can continue to innovate, right? We're thinking about, okay, maybe this isn't going to work our existing business where we get the bulk of our bread and butter, but listen, folks, we've got a plan and here's where we're going to go. Right. Right. And and Zuckerberg drew attention to competitors for the first time really I've ever seen in an earnings call. He talked about how Facebook Watch is not nearly as big as YouTube, how Facebook Messenger competes in the U.S. with iMessage, but around Mm. the world it's, it's more prominent when there isn't that iMessage component. That was really interesting because it helped investors visualize how big these parts of Facebook's business can be, how Zuckerberg's thinking about them, that Facebook is not just Facebook. It's all these other properties that are competing with these giants on a on a large scale. All right. Well, you uh, have alluded to all the apologies that they've had to make, and that's been largely around hacking influence over elections, etc. Guess what? There's another election next week that all eyes are on. Any talk about that, either on the call and maybe more importantly, what's the worry spot for investors, for analysts, for customers uh, as we get closer to the midterms? Well, you have to look at at how people are thinking about this broadly on Facebook. The the company makes its money off of advertising. If there's a lot of misinformation and political hate and all sorts of people mudslinging on Facebook around the election, that's not a thing you want to sell your product against, right? right? So that that's like a danger financially. But just beyond that, it's it's the the place where you want users to come and hang out and have a good time and get updates on their friend's new baby or so-and-so's wedding. I mean, that is what you want Facebook to be, and yet it is so uh, so dense with this sort of political turmoil. So the company is not going to be able to solve that, but what they can do is they have this war room they've set up where they're t- keeping track of what's going viral and how the political right, right. ad money is flowing, and they'll be able to stop things in theory, before they get really bad. So there's probably not going to be another Pope endorses Trump (laughs) kind of story taking over the headlines. Well, we will certainly see. uh, Nonetheless, uh, Facebook shares up about 4.6% as we speak. Sarah Fryer, thank you so much for your analysis. Technology reporter at Bloomberg News. we are ultimately going to find out where we are in terms of this market and economic cycle. Our next guest has some thoughts on that. Let's get to him. Joe Kalish, back with us, Chief Global Macro Strategist over at Ned Davis Research, based in uh, Sarasota, Florida. He's been there for a long time, as he was reminding us before we got going. He's in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio right here in New York. Nice to have you here. This is, I feel like, the trillion-dollar question about where we are in our economic and market cycles. Let me first, though, kick it off with you mentioned you're in town 
you're doing media, but you're also talking to clients. What's kind of the mood uh, as you talk to uh, some of your um, institutional client base? I think there's a greater sense of caution uh, given you know what we've seen both with rising interest rates and uh, some questions about uh, some individual companies and earnings and you know we've seen particularly in the tech sector you know getting knocked knocked down uh, somewhat this uh, this past month uh, you know I think there are a, a bit of a concern about you know going forward what is what does growth look like and you know how, how far can we push stocks up so are you telling them because your report says wait we've got more room to run are you saying don't be so worried things are okay yeah so I, I think there there still is first of all more room to go in the economic cycle uh, and but it is going to be a little bit more challenging, a little bit tougher for equity investors compared to what they've seen uh, since the, the start of this bull market back in, in March of 2009. Uh, and and, and that, that's just a natural part of the cycle. It doesn't mean that the cycle is going to be ending, but it's just going to get a little more difficult from this point on. And you, in your note that uh, you shared with us uh, ahead of time, talk about the bond bear market. It's yes. here. So what what was the catalyst and what does it mean? Sure. So um, first of all, you know, I've been sort of playing that we've been in a bond bear market since July of 2016 after the post-Brexit vote. But we really couldn't say definitively that mm-hmm. we were in a bond bear market it, uh, because we saw yields rising in the short end, short to intermediate portion of the curve in twos and five-year notes. But we really didn't have that confirmation from uh, the 10-year and 30-year, the longer end of, of the curve, uh, up until uh, what we saw earlier this month. We saw those breakouts. So that was a big piece that was missing for me and, and sort of making this declaration that we're finally in a bond bear market. So there were really four different categories I was looking at. So one was, was sort of the rising yields or what we'd probably call the technicals. Uh, and up until the beginning of the month, we, we really couldn't say there wasn't just a giant curve flattening trade uh, that, you know, the we were seeing short yields uh, uh, rising, but we really weren't seeing much on, on the long end. But now we've seen a series of both you know, higher highs in yields right. and higher lows. And the second, then we had you know, some signs of uh, cyclical inflationary pressures. But the really big change, I think, had to, come, uh, had to do with supply. And that's really what caused me to de- declare the bond bear market, is that we were starting to see supply coming from treasuries and even some from mortgages. And this is really more about uh, this bond bear call is really more about uh, increased supply and normalization right. of monetary policy than it is about increasing inflation. Which I think about our Alex Harris comes on and says, you know, like, just look at the government and we're issuing more and more and, and people are starting to get, you know, should we be worried about the auctions and so on and so forth? So I get that. So if you're, if you say the bond bear, uh, bond bear market is here, I mean, typically we don't see stocks and bonds trade in unison. We've seen some of that certainly coming off of the financial crisis because of uh, quantitative easing and so on and so forth. But so does that mean to you then the equity markets can rally. So th- they can rally if you know there's a, a growth aspect to that, and it's just you know a question of uh, do, does earnings and growth you know go up faster than interest rates? Does it? And and so I, I think there you know is a is a, a, a possibility for for that to happen. I'm looking for you know some some positive earnings growth for next year. I'm mm-hmm. not you know I'm not really looking for a decline in economic activity that would cause you know negative impact on 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 earnings. But uh, you know, we are going to be wrestling with higher interest rates. 
rates and and that is going to you know become a a headwind for you know how much we can really uh, rally in in the equity market which plays Jason to I just think of the Peter Coy conversation we had what a couple of weeks ago about yeah it, it, it the rates may still be low on a historical basis but the pace of the, the the momentum that we're seeing to the upside that has certainly picked up and the Fed has basically said to us we're going higher right and, and that I've, changes things so so just you know, got about 30 seconds. Yeah, so I think the critical uh, point, Carol, for next year is mm-hmm. productivity growth. Because mm-hmm. if we don't have productivity growth, yeah. then unit labor costs are going to accelerate. And if unit labor costs are going to accelerate, then the Fed is going to continue to hike rates. Right, and you need productivity growth to get a little bit more economic momentum as well. So it, it would help potential growth, and, yeah. and that will help contain inflationary pressures as well. Joe Kalish, Chief Global Macro Strategist for Ned Davis Research, usually down in Florida. Uh, thanks for stopping by our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Always good to catch up, especially at a time when yeah. I do feel like the questions, while they've been out there getting louder and louder, mm-hmm. or on the eve of the midterms, we're going into a new year before too long. And a lot of people are wondering whether this long-in-the-tooth bear market may be... Uh, wrapping up. Right. And also when we've got a lot of folks saying 2020, that's when we maybe see our next recession, which will be an election year. talk a little bit about uh, the restaurant space because, first of all, this is what I call a wait what moment, Jason Kelly, because Dine Brands Global, that stock is up about 63% this year. It's the company home to Applebee's and IHOP, uh, now said to be interested maybe in a third brand. It's out with earnings today, so we want to get into it, beating on both the top and bottom lines. Well known to our audience, although he's got a bit of a new job. <laughs> he switched titles New-ish. Off. New-ish, New-ish job. Ish. Steve uh, Joyce. It's not that different. Steve you, know, Joyce. You, you sell hotel rooms, you sell, you sell pancakes, you sell ribbons. It's all it's all about the consumer. Steve Joyce is it with us. He's CEO at Dine Brands Global, based in uh, Maryland, right? No, no Glendale, right California. That's right, Glendale, California. Forgive me. The old uh, place was in Maryland. That's right, that's right. Uh, in our Bloomberg uh, Interactive Broker Studio. Yeah, nice. hotel rooms are one thing, but you know what? You don't get all different kinds of syrup there, no, you and you get, get that at IHOP. Well, the truth of the matter is the restaurant business is much more highly customized than the hotel business. So when we were building the online ordering app, I forget the number of permutations on the IHOP menu, but nobody eats what what's on there. They all everybody customizes it, right? So right. you want a little this, you want a little that. Pretty soon, but there were like millions of potential permutations of a hundred and fifty item menu. Well, so talk to us about the new job. Talk to us about the quarter. Um, investors are very happy with what they got. Uh, how's the business going? It's really getting fun. So, you know, we have gone back and I think captured the attention of the American public and why they like these brands, okay? So in Applebee's, it's eating good in the neighborhood. And look, on its premise, 65% of Americans say when they're feeling stressed, they want food that comforts them and a, and a comforting setting. That's what we do, okay? And so 90% of Americans say they've never been more stressed than today. So if you think about it, this is the right time for us. Now, what we do is we represent an amazing um, demographic of the American public. First of all, 20-some percent of the American public eats in our restaurants every year. Mm-hmm. So they know us, right? Secondly, not only do we skew huge with 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 boomers, we skew huge with millennials. And so I, I you know, when I came over, I'm reading all these articles about you know, casual dining is dead for millennials and family dining is dead for millennials. I'm looking at our demographics. I'm like, well, I have 51% of our customers are under the age of 34. Last time I looked, those are millennials. So where's the disconnect there? What what are people yeah. missing? Our demographics are very different than the rest of the restaurant industry. Okay. 
And the reason being is we have this generational thing for both brands. The grandfather took the grandson, the father took the son, and now they're taking their kids. And it's and it's just self-fulfilling. And so, and then on the Applebee side, we're 45% under the age of 34, but it's growing. And you know why it's growing? The neighborhood drink promotion. When you do Dollaritas, or in October for this month, we did Dollar Zombies, which was huge, okay? <laughs> you go in and you get a drink. Well, you know who comes in? Who? Groups of 20-somethings. Right. Mostly women. Huh. Hispanic and African-American, all of which are target markets for us. So that's why, you know, we think that the Applebee's number is going to continue to grow in terms of the, the youth movement. Okay. So where, where are you seeing most of the growth? Because you guys are also opening up overseas. You know, give me the brands, IHOP and Applebee's. And I'm also curious, because you are closing stores domestically. We, we have. And that was sort of some cleanup for, for Applebee's, which is done. IHOP's on a tear. So they're, they're at all-time highs of, of additions. And so um, on Applebee's, we're going to start adding restaurants again probably the end of next year domestically so, yeah so that's great where are you uh, picking where do you want to be well it's the, the the brands are national so we've got lots of opportunity in urban markets which we're going to focus on and then we've got some key markets like chicago where we're not very well penetrated but mm. should be hmm. so we, we've got targeted areas of where we want to go and then urban's going to be a major push and and you may see some different variations of the restaurant because urban doesn't necessarily lend itself to a big big right. footprint restaurant. So right. uh, all right, so can I ask you about something that's very controversial, a big topic in our house, which was the IHOP IHOB, <laughs> that whole burger thing that you did. Really, you, in your household too? Oh my god, my kids. <laughs> My kids texted me from Scandinavia going, what are you doing? People are upset. People were really upset. They were. But then they kind you know of got the joke. Because they love the brand. Right. And if you, you know, I, it was funny because we got this, the immediate press reaction was only an idiot would mess with an iconic brand like IHOP. A Did week, you guys frame I swear it? to God, oh, we should have. <laughs> A week later I got, these people have reinvented social marketing for the next decade. Right. I don't think either one's quite true. But. <laughs> We did get 44 billion impressions, 22,000 media coverages. It's free advertising. Okay. It's like Nike so, and So uh, somebody Catholic. said, did you expect that? I'm like, no. <laughs> no. I mean, it was, it was remarkable. But you know what it is, though? That brand is so loved globally that if you suggest you're going to do anything with it, Everybody wants to know about it. Right. We had celebrities tweeting what what we should do with it. One 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 said, "I think it should be the International House of Beyonce." I'm like, well, <laughs> okay, we can do that. All right, I have to ask you though, because I tease that you guys are looking for probably another brand, right, to mm -hmm. add to uh, your repertoire. Um, we were kidding before we got going. What about Chipotle? I mean, what are you looking for? What do you want? So we want we actually what we want is a smaller brand that we can grow nationally. Um, because we need, we want to add to the growth platform, and our franchisees are looking for new concepts from us. Mm -hmm. So they're doing very well with us. So they're saying, "What else can you bring us?" And they're building other brands at the same time. So we want to be, we want to provide them with another opportunity. So, so think of a, we'll probably do a regional brand, maybe a hundred units, maybe, and and then we'll grow it to a thousand. Right. Okay. That's got, and we want to do something different though than we're doing because we're we are the dominant player. Right. We're the eleventh year in a row. We're the number one casual dining and family dining, for Applebee's and IHOP respectively, and so we're the dominant player in those segments. And those are the biggest segments in the business. So it's a good place to be dominant. So I love pancakes, blueberry or chocolate chip, both. Uh, <laughs> healthy eating is that on your radar? Oh, absolutely. And so the whole point is. On those menus, while they are indulgent related, 
we are very focused on diet yeah. restrictions. So we're, we're, we're bringing out a gluten-free pancake, for example. Um, we already have one in, um, in India. So, but yeah, we're, we've got to do that to eliminate the no vote. Very, very interesting stuff. I will be a hero at home tonight for getting the IHOP, IHOP <laughs> question answered. Steve Joyce, CEO of Dine Brands Global. Thank you so much for being with us. Good to us. have you here. Cash in the left of me, cash in the right of me, cash in the front of me, cash in the back of me, cash me. That's pretty good walk-in music for uh, Dune Lawrence, I'm not going to lie. Uh, Dune Lawrence, uh, projects and investigations reporter here at Bloomberg, but... So much more. That sort of undersells you in a lot of ways. You're a woman of the world. Uh, and one of the most interesting She's blushing. Things... <laughs> I know you can't see that on radio, but she's blushing. <laughs> but one of the most interesting things that I feel like we talk about so much is crypto, Bitcoin. and But we look at it through this very Wall Street-y yeah. lens. And mm-hmm. Dune has a fantastic piece uh, in the new issue of Bloomberg Business Week. It's available now uh, online and on the Bloomberg Terminal about crypto really making its way into emerging markets in what I thought at least was a surprising way. Doing great to have you with us. So tell us what's going on in Kenya. What I love too, it's like crypto at work, actually. Yeah, crypto in the real world. It's out there, um, at least in Kenya. (laughs) (laughs) So what's going on in Kenya? So you have to back up a little bit and start with the project that has been in existence, which is also pretty interesting, which is a community currency project, Mm -hmm. which is basically you create paper vouchers and you say within this community, the community decides to do this and says, we'll accept these paper vouchers as money, as a medium exchange, and that will help us when we don't have cash to spend, you know, official shillings, Kenyan shillings. And that has been going on since 2013 in Kenya. And now there are about six communities who have their own vouchers and it's really helped there these are very very poor communities it's basically it's slums outside of nairobi and mombasa and so rather than bartering they have been using this currency yes but there's a way to blockchain it up essentially and so now use a technical wow did he make a verb out of that that so now uh the the individual community currencies have been successful enough that they're trying to scale it up by allowing them to trade with each other. Until now, it's been limited by, by neighborhood. So, they're, so this project uh, is to put, it, put these community currencies on the blockchain and make them into tradable digital tokens so that, you know, with a smartphone or even a regular flip phone, uh, you can go from the Gatina neighborhood and use your Gatina Pesa and go buy vegetables in the Lindy neighborhood, which has its and that'll and when you make that transaction, your Gatina Pesa will automatically be transferred through this reserve token on the blockchain into Lindy Pesa. What's the value of it though? I wonder like right, like we our currencies trade every moment, right? And there's relationships between the different currencies. So what determines the value of that community currency? Well, when it's set up initially, it's basically one-to-one with the Kenyan shilling. Now, that doesn't mean that the community currencies, when they actually trade with each other, will be one-to-one, because, of course, it depends. It'll really depend on the demand and supply, right? So if one community is getting all of the trade, you know, everyone's going there to make their purchases, then that community currency will end up being more valuable than the other one. So there are a lot of very interesting problems to making, you know, turning this into a blockchain project, which, you know, the 
the people who are doing it, uh, which is an organization called Grassroots Economics and a blockchain company called Bancor, are working through right now. Can I just say, if you're having trouble getting your head about, because I think we sh- we're all trying to figure out the useful applications of digital currencies, but if you're having trouble getting your head about, around it, you, you point out, you guys point out in the story, your story, that we've already kind of bought into community currencies when we use frequent flyer miles. Right? Oh, yeah. I mean, there are all sorts of alternative right? alternative currencies out there, right? Yeah. I mean, uh, frequent flyer miles is one. I mean, it, it was very interesting to look at this, uh, at, at this and then sort of look a little bit into the history of alternative and community currencies because right. there are a lot of examples out there that you wouldn't think of. Mm-hmm. For example, in Switzerland, they've had something called the Weir. Uh, it's, a, it's a Weir bank, and it, has, and it issues Weir francs that it's basically a B2B currency. Right. Um, it's been going on since the 30s. And it feels like the other big reminder here is that I, we are as much you know, modern technology as we have at our fingertips here in the United States. We're actually behind in some ways in terms of mobile payment. And especially you've spent a lot of time in Asia uh, and in China specifically. And, and you've seen up close and personal, do, you know, how reliant WeChat, all of those things. You know, mobile payments are well ahead of the rest of the world outside of the United States in a lot of ways. About 30 seconds left. Yeah. And, and I think that's what's interesting about Kenya is it's really kind of leapfrogged in terms of mobile payments. And that's why it's also an interesting place to experiment with blockchain. Very, very good stuff. Dune Lawrence, projects and investigations reporter for Bloomberg. Her story, How Cryptocurrency Can Help Communities Where Cash is Scarce. It's featured in the upcoming New Economy Form issue of Bloomberg Business Week magazine. That's out this Friday. The story is available, though, right now online and on the Bloomberg Terminal. What's also cool about that story is that folks that are often left out of the traditional financial infrastructure and communities, this is a way of bringing them in, including them in inclusion, right, Uh, in terms of uh, having a method and a way to financially transact. I love that. I love what's going on in emerging markets when it comes to uh, the financial area. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Jason Kelly alongside Carol Masser on this Wednesday afternoon on Bloomberg Radio. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That punk music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. It is time for the drive to the close. We're just about 10 minutes away from the closing bell. Wrapping up the last trading day of October. Let's bring in Sean Cruz, manager of trader strategy at TD Ameritrade, joining us on the phone from New Jersey. Uh, Sean, good to have you here with uh, Jason and myself uh, here on Halloween, last trading day of October. It was not a good one. I'm curious about kind of uh, some of the flows that you guys noticed on your trading desk uh, this month and especially as we finish it up. So if we look at what we've seen on pullbacks throughout the year, we, we saw our clients um, at TD Ameritrade actually use that as more of a buying opportunity. In the past couple, uh, I'd say month or two, on these strong pullbacks, we've actually seen them actually doing a little bit more rotating. So it's not just general um, broad-based buying or even going into the same two or three sectors. They're starting to just trade the ebb and flow of these markets. And I think it, it makes sense because you started to see correlations really break down across a lot of 
these sectors going into um, September. And I think that for them meant that they were going to have to be a little bit more choosy and, and tactical about which sectors they were going into and out of. And we saw that play out on, on quite a few days um, over the past month where you would have some sectors moving higher, the other moving lower, and then that would almost reverse in the week or two that, uh, that followed. And our clients were, were really trading that rotation back and forth throughout the month. So, Sean, we've been trying to make a sense of earnings season, as we always do, and trying to synthesize both the numbers and the commentary. And, and I wonder, and I think you've looked at both of these names, so I'm hoping you can help us give, it, give, a good, help give us a good picture. You look at what GM said. You look at what Facebook said. How do you sort of square that into some sort of picture of the market or these or, or even just in those individual names? So for Facebook, and something that's interesting that we've just seen out of the fangs this year was you really started to get a little bit of divergence within that those those fang names, and that was you didn't really see them moving you know all higher as clients flowed into some of those growthier tech names. Um, you started to see regulatory risk come into play much more for Facebook and Google, and I think that's what clients were really worried about was, one, is this additional focus from regulators going to cause you to change your business that may be done in a manner that's going to impact margins moving forward. I think Facebook was able to come out and, and at least um, assuage some of those fears that margins aren't going to be hit um, quite as much as maybe some of those uh, investors had originally feared because you didn't really get the the spectacular growth numbers that investors typically look for out of Facebook. So I think this means they're a little bit more concerned about the regulatory risk and any sort of risk to margin. So, you know, you mentioned that investors were taking advantage of some of the pullbacks and, and you said kind of moving in and out of sector, especially in this last month where we saw some sharp sell-offs uh, in a lot of names and a lot of groups, uh, really kind of all of your major industry groups. Um, where did you see investors moving into? Where did you see them moving out of? So on some of these dips, when there there were pullbacks, you would see them move into some names where the selling got a little bit more, uh, I'd say, overdone. And actually, on Monday, we are going to put out the TD Ameritrade IMX, which covers a lot of our client activity over the month, and we will get into specific names that clients were buying and selling. So I don't I don't want to spoil that release just yet. But I think we we do see. Oh, you can spoil clients. it a little. We're we're okay with that. <laughs> I know. I think we do see clients moving in. I'd say for energy might be an example where, as we saw um, crude oil move up towards 75, there was a little bit of profit taking in some of those energy names before we saw that pullback in crude oil. I think there's just some interesting plays going on with our clients where once you start to see maybe a, a little bit of a range that they're they're used to seeing a, a, some underlying trade in, in this case looking at crude, they're used to that 65 to 75 dollar barrel range, and they've been using that that movement of crude oil within that range as an opportunity opportunity to trade certain uh, energy names. And we certainly saw that in the month where as it started to peak out, they were going to take a little bit more profit in some of those energy names that had moved higher along with the, the price accrued. And, and that's the type of activity that we think we're going we're gonna to see across the board in the TD Ameritrade IMX on Monday. And so, Sean, after Monday comes Tuesday. Next Tuesday is Election Day. Uh, how worried are you or what are you anticipating? What are you telling your clients about the role of the midterm elections in managing a, a portfolio going forward? 
So right now, I think if you look at the midterm election, be it any sort of trade policy discussions, with our clients to view these as just some of those bigger macro risks that sometimes the, the best way to prepare for those is to make sure you are aware of where all the risk is in your portfolio and making sure that you're balanced and you're comfortable with all of the, the various exposures you have. And so whenever we have something coming up, and I think in the next month or two, even once we get through earnings, you're going to have some trade policy discussions coming up in November between the U.S. and China. You do have the U.S. elections, and I think there's going to be a lot of, of reading of the tea leaves on just exactly what the outcome of that election is for. Important things like, is there going to be additional tax reform on the horizon, or are we going to maybe right. get a little bit more of a gridlock to Congress? But whatever those those risks are sometimes the best way to be prepared for those than trying to have a crystal ball and predict what's going to happen and exactly how the market's going to react is just making sure you're diversified and comfortable with the risk you're holding your portfolio so that's what td ameritrade clients are hearing right now great uh thanks so much sean cruz manager of trader strategy at td ameritrade joining us on the phone from new jersey interesting theme that we keep hearing i feel like carol is that the elections are going to be what they're going to be but that meeting between Trump and Xi and what that ultimately means for trade between the U.S. and China and trade globally, right. that's the next big thing. Well, thank you. You start to put tariffs on— I'm sure you on- already realized this. I'm just realizing No, no, now. no. But you think you've, you start to put tariffs on things like you know cell phones, Apple phones, and things that we really care about, consumers— uh, it really starts to hurt even more. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.